from Lawson Media, this is Building a Unicorn, the show exploring what it takes to build a big global business. I'm Christopher Lawson. When you're working on any new enterprise, starting a new career, or looking to move up in the world, you might find yourself wondering where you can go to get advice from people that have been there before. Sure, you could start surfing around online and you may come across some self-help style content, but in many situations, what you might actually need is a mentor. Someone who can give you specific advice and feedback, or share from their own personal experience, and who will help you throughout a period of your career. Many companies already run mentoring programs for their staff. And usually it consists of filling out a form or a spreadsheet and then being matched with people higher up the organisation. But for our guests this episode, those old processes were just too frustrating. Lucy Lloyd is the CEO and co-founder of Mentorloop, a company that's trying to make it easier for businesses to run mentoring programs for their staff. You know, there's a common perception of it out there that it's this hierarchical relationship with this kind of sage, you know, Mr Miyagi kind of figure that helps you change yourself and change the world. But we believe mentoring is more subtle than that. Um, in any day we might have, you know, multiple kind of interactions that are just tiny little course corrections that help us become better versions of ourselves, give us a little bit of perspective. And so we believe, yeah, mentoring is vital to everyone because it is actually just kind of interactions with people who change your, your state of mind or change how you think about something slightly. Lucy grew up in regional Victoria on a farm near a town called Lake Bolac, which is about three hours' drive west of Melbourne. Her dad was a farmer and her mother was a teacher. He was a grazier, so he basically his, his day looked like getting up, getting on the motorbike and going out and rounding up cattle. And my mum, uh, yeah, was a teacher, so she taught at the local high school. And so uh, I have two siblings, so, yeah, we grew up on the farm. You know, we'd get the school bus in every day and then home. And then, yeah, basically most of our evenings were just spent kind of running around outside and taming local feral cats to be our pets. <laughs> <laughs> Did you successfully tame yeah, feral yeah. cats? Well, when you got them young enough, yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's the trick to tame? It's mainly cat. food, yeah. It's right. just food, yeah. But despite watching her father run his own business, Lucy says she wasn't really that interested in ever becoming an entrepreneur. I kind of had that role model in my dad because a farmer is kind of all sorts of things. You know, they're running their own business, but they're also a mechanic, they're a vet, they're all these different types of jobs. So now I look back and I see that I had that role model, but it certainly wasn't my natural inclination. It's my, my co-founder, Heidi, who brought the real kind of entrepreneurship to our partnership. I guess I foresaw kind of a future as some kind of professional. Uh, it was a little bit, you know, a little bit dim. I wasn't sure exactly what, but, but now that it's what I do, I, I realise I couldn't be doing anything else. Lucy says she did well in school, but one of the difficulties with growing up in a regional area is access to educational opportunities. So when Lucy was 15, she moved to a boarding school in Melbourne. I was a pretty good student. I was a bit of a nerd. I read a lot. I boarded at school here in Melbourne and was, you know, I just love Melbourne and, and fell in love with it when I was 15 and, and haven't stopped being in love with it. So, yeah, I loved study. Uh, when I left school, I went to university and studied economics and French, which basically equipped me for absolutely no career in anything. It was during this time at boarding school that Lucy met Heidi Holmes, the person who would eventually become her friend and co-founder. We met on um, like a, an exam day before we actually started school. So it was before, it was kind of six months before we actually started at the school we went to. You know, we were both from the country, Heidi's from the country as well. And so there were a whole lot of girls in their beautifully kind of pristine school uniforms um, waiting for this exam. And then we were the two kind of ring-ins from the country standing in the corner and we just kind of looked at each other awkwardly a couple of times and then said g'day and, and then started talking. And yeah, we were two girls from the country basically amongst all these other girls who seemed to know exactly what they were doing. And so, yeah, our friendship was kind of forged from there. Right. And then you you obviously stayed close throughout school. Yeah, we stayed close, but we went in totally different directions career-wise. After completing school, Lucy went off to the University of Melbourne to study economics and French, and during that time was starting to dip her toes into the job market. She began working for a gifting website called Wishlist. 
Before that, all my jobs had been hospitality. You know, I was kind of a big hospitality person when I was at uni. And this is my first like office job, which was very exciting. You know, when you don't get dirty at work, it's really exciting. You kind of feel like you've (laughs) arrived. Uh, So, yeah, I was a copywriter. And, yeah, it's weird how it kind of foreshadowed what I'd do eventually because I actually started at Wishlisting Customer Service. So I was just answering phones for people whose packages hadn't arrived and stuff like that. And so that's incredibly good training for running an online business. And what did that? experience at Wishlist um, sort of teach you about running a business? I think it was all around kind of of the moment customer service. So Wishlist um, is sometimes confused with the Make-A-Wish Foundation, but Wishlist was actually an an e-commerce play. It was an online department store. Uh, So it was around kind of 2000 and three, four, five, I guess. So it was after the kind of dot-com bubble had burst, but Wishlist had survived, but it was still relatively early in, in online commerce for Australia. And so it was early adopters who were ordering uh, packages online or gifts online, and a lot of things went wrong. And so manning customer service at Wishlist was most often you were just dealing with really angry customers. <laughs> were, there, were there any sort of like interesting moments in that? Um, yeah, I mean, we did a lot of corporate gifting, so I can remember just taking a phone call, you know, and it wasn't my fault or anything like that. This is what you think as a uni student. You're like, this isn't my fault, you know, why am I getting the heat for this? But yeah, from from someone whose corporate gifts, none of which had been delivered, and it was basically February by this point, and they just realised that, you know, none of their special clients had gotten their corporate gifts. And I had no clue how important this could be to someone, that gifts would be delivered like this. And um, yeah, I, I really kind of felt, I guess I took it personally, the criticism and stuff. But it was a really great lesson in, uh, I guess, turning a conversation around for a start, but also putting the customer first, you know, and appreciating how, how much it can be at stake for a customer that you don't necessarily see when you're speaking to them or when you're on the receiving end of, of some bile. What did you say to them? I think a lot of the time when people are angry, they just want to be listened to. You know, nothing can be done. It's February now. We couldn't go back in time and get their their parcels to them. So it's actually just about listening to them and just, you know, agreeing and saying, yes, I can understand that. Yes, totally. And I think that's a really good lesson for anyone because when you start a technology company, you're going to piss users off because, you know, you're always going to be shipping stuff before it's been completely tested as much as it possibly could be. And so you need to be able to, yeah, have that, I guess, that customer service hat on from from the get-go. When Lucy finished her degree, she took up a graduate position with the Victorian government. It was a role that was focused on trying to attract retailers or other organisations to open up stores or offices in Melbourne. But despite it being a good role, she soon decided to make a move, like many young Australians, to London. Well, I just kind of fell in love with someone. So I'd met them when I'd been travelling like the year before when I was in Europe and they seemed awesome and were awesome and still still are awesome and I'm not with them anymore but, yeah, we, we were together for a while. So, yeah, I fell in love, went over there and just kind of fell into digital. So I read a job ad in London that just said, are you interested in bars and restaurants? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm really interested <laughs> in bars and restaurants and it ended up being a, a digital agency that did websites for bars and restaurants. So your role there was sort of like managing those projects? Yeah, it was account management, um, but it taught me a lot about basically digital project management, SEO, SEM, content marketing, email marketing, social media advertising. Like while I was there, this is kind of 2008, 2009, so it was still relatively early days. Like Google Maps had only just kind of come out. And, you know, Facebook was really, really pretty early. Like Facebook for brands, I mean, was very early. So it was, you know, it was the forefront of a lot of the the ways we communicate now that we take for granted that just emerging. When people go to a new country and they live in a new country, often they can get like a little bit of culture shock. Did you experience that? Not really. I mean, I guess I think the UK, you know, they're pretty close to us um, in terms of culture. You know, I don't think there's anything closer. So I didn't get a huge amount of culture shock. I mean, there was just it was more about, you know, just the standard stuff. Like, one, the, the beautiful kind of romance of the city was was amazing to see and the, the kind of history. And then, on the other hand, the weather was just abysmal. So that was a shock <laughs> in the other direction. So, you know, you take the rough with the smooth. Yeah. <laughs> what, um, what did working in London teach you about uh, global markets and the way that business works globally? I think that there's just a, there's a universality to business, um, particularly, you know, English speaking business and how, how people consider it. I think what London did for me, I worked with this really quite entrepreneurial, like small shop who were running 
websites and digital strategy for bars and restaurants and doing so really quickly. And so I learned a lot about sales basically and kind of high pressure sales situations and um, and talking people through. Because, you know, if you're talking to a publican, for example, you know, they've got someone who wants to talk to them about the drains. They've got someone who wants to talk to them about the jukebox or the band or whatever's happening. So you've only got a couple of minutes to kind of get their attention and say, you know, do you want a website? And they've existed for hundreds and hundreds of years without a website or email marketing as a strategy. And so it taught me a lot about how to kind of make the digital stuff vital to people, uh, which is still kind of skills that I use today. When the global financial crisis hit in 2008, Lucy and her partner were faced with the challenge. He worked in the banking industry and he ended up getting a payout. So they had to make a decision. Do they stay in London or make a move back home? They decided to come back to Australia, where there were more opportunities for someone with Lucy's experience. And she ended up gaining work as a project manager in a digital agency. And she worked there for a number of years. Now, around this time, Heidi was building her own company, a job board for mature workers. And it was through running this job board that inspiration struck. So she had this database of kind of 20,000 people over the age of 45 who were looking to engage and find a job, basically. But some of them weren't necessarily uh, motivated by money. And so she thought, well, one way they could kind of engage is via mentoring. So she was kind of playing around with this idea. Meanwhile, um, I just worked with uh, a client that was an organisational development company. Together we'd built this uh, online platform to gamify um, workplace wellbeing for companies. It was called Teamtopia. So it was basically a way for teams and companies to uh, build wellbeing into what they actually rewarded their staff for through kind of gamification and badges and things. And so I was talking about this project. Heidi was talking about her uh, database of, of kind of mature age people looking to engage somehow. And we started talking about even our own individual experiences when you're navigating transitions, like I just kind of moved back from London, she had started this this business and wouldn't it be wonderful if you could connect with a future version of yourself to kind of like a Sherpa to help you navigate those transitions. And so we talked about um, dating sites and how kind of online dating had been on the fringe, you know, 20 years ago, but right. now was very much mainstream. And we thought, okay, well, why couldn't we do that for the professional connections that help you take it to the next level? And so it was essentially the idea for a dating site for mentoring. And we were having a lot of wine during this conversation as well. And so, you know, it became very big in our minds very quickly. And uh, yeah, but even after, you know, the kind of the wine was finished and the weeks kind of went past, we just kept coming back, circling back to this idea. How long was it from when you started like formulating this idea to when it was like, okay, we need to do something about this? It was pretty quick um, to actually do something, but it was a fair while before we actually started the business. So we kind of did it on the side and Heidi had her other business. I was yet yeah, digital director of an advertising agency. So on the side of all of this, we, in our evenings and weekends and whenever we could, basically, we were kind of wireframing and building out a, a prototype of a product that would um, help mentoring happen more seamlessly. And so while it started life as a dating site for mentoring, we started talking to corporates, communities, industry bodies, anyone running mentoring programs or participating in mentoring programs and started to see the same problems crop up. And they were, there's an admin burden, people were using spreadsheets and emails. Uh, there was a total lack of ability to report on the success of, of mentoring and what it actually meant for organisations. And for the end users, the mentors and mentees, there was often this kind of flurry of activity up front, but then relationships were left to wither on the vine. And so there were, everybody kind of believed in mentoring, but everybody had also had kind of a shit experience with mentoring programs that didn't go anywhere. So all of these problems, we thought, okay, well, they're problems, one, we can solve with software relatively you know, in a relatively straightforward way. And there's also people willing to pay for it because it was the corporates that were running these programs. So you really like heavily researched it before you Yeah, before we did anything. anything yeah, yeah. In it. Right. And I had a little bit of background in managing digital projects so I could wireframe. So we just kind of threw up some wireframes, put them in front of people, I guess established who the client was, started to build out a functional spec uh, and then shop that around again. So yeah, we did a lot of we didn't even know what it was, you know, when, when we were doing it. I mean, now we realise it's kind of validation and it's customer discovery and there's all these terms for it. But, yeah, it just seemed like the right thing to do before we... Because neither of us was a developer. So we we needed to have a fair bit of conviction before we each put a bit of money in and paid someone to build something. And coming up after the break, 
Lucy and Heidi decide it's time to focus all their energy on their new startup. This is Building a Unicorn. I'm Christopher Lawson. After spending some time working on their wireframe concepts and talking to a bunch of potential clients, Lucy and Heidi decided it was time to start seriously investing in their idea. So they got together and raised $15,000 each to hire a development team to help them make their vision a reality. Yeah, like I had to borrow most of it. Um, you know, it was still it was it wasn't kind of money we had lying around, but we I guess we had that level of conviction and, and put it in. So we kind of had this pool of thirty grand. And we're like, well, let's spend in those days. It wasn't that long ago, but I guess we were started this in kind of two thousand and thirteen, fourteen. Dev was a lot more commodified, but also there were a lot more uh, I guess variances in quality of what you paid for. But you could get sometimes you could get something done really cheaply, really easily. And so we kind of probably spent twenty grand on the first prototype, which nowadays I don't know if you could do, but we did. Uh, and then we started to sell that prototype. Right. Because neither of you were developers. No, I mean, I'd project manage dev projects. So there was, you know, the, we had some idea about kind of specking and briefing and quality assurance and stuff, but really we were relying on being able to trust our developers. How did you go about that process of finding someone to actually build this for you, to take this vision that you had and then turn it into something real that you could go to market with? Yeah, I mean, it started with the wireframing and kind of the functional spec and we spec'd it pretty closely uh, and then we shopped it round to a range of different developers. And so we got we got kind of uh, quotes, you know, from offshore ranging from kind of 6K to 200K. So it was, it was a huge range. Um, some people I knew through my network, some people were just recommended, some people were just found by Google and eventually landed on this um, uh, this uh, code shop in, in Collingwood here in Melbourne who uh, came in at a pretty good price but also they kind of importantly questioned a lot of our brief, you know, they weren't just taking it at face value and saying, yeah, we'll, we'll build this, they actually kind of ran us through a lot of the points and had difficult conversations with us about the assumptions we'd made and so we're like, okay, well, these guys are the partners. After getting their prototype built, Lucy and Heidi started the process of trying to build a client base. They reached out to everyone they talked to in their research and anyone they could find that would be interested in using their product. We just spoke to as many people as we could. I don't know how many conversations we had, maybe 60, but we managed to get three clients to use it. And it was really a very shit product like it was a painful thing to use but the fact that those clients you know used it and and used it over a period of time validated for us that there was a problem that we were solving and it was you know it was something that there was something there basically it may not have been the best product however it gave them the market validation they needed to push on so armed with some actual data and their three original clients Lucy and Heidi decided to keep putting more of their own cash into the business to keep the idea moving along, and they did this for almost three years. But by 2016, they reached a point where they had to make a decision. After that initial money we put in, we drip-fed more money in, so it was kind of whatever we could find, you know, from month to month we'd put in and we'd buy, you know, five or six hours of development to, to kind of improve the product. Our three clients continued to use it. We kind of got to this point where it was probably the most stressed we were ever in our journey as, as co-founders, where we weren't sure if we were going in or out, you know. We were kind of like, we've got this these kind of measures that are vaguely validating what we're doing, um, but at the same time we've both got these other commitments, um, you know, in, in jobs and family and stuff. And so it was probably the most, I guess, tension that there's existed between us was when we were like, will we or won't we? And so to, I guess, ease that tension, we decided to kind of take it outside of ourselves and we decided to try and run a little funding round. And so we're like, well, if we can get, 200 grand to say, based on the evidence we've got, the validation we've got, then let's go all in and, and actually do this thing. Lucy and Heidi ended up raising 300,000 Australian dollars, which is currently about 215,000 US dollars. And that gave them the confidence to make a leap, put their careers aside and embrace the startup life. So what was it for you that made you decide that okay, like, this is the moment. Like, was there a moment for you where you're like, I have to do this full time? 
No, it was more, I don't know if it's the right thing to do this full time, so I'm going to take the decision out of myself and let's bring some external validation in, which was the, basically the funding round. Because Heidi and I, like, we were kind of like, are we, aren't we? One of us would be kind of more into it than the other from week to week. So we were just kind of, we were tiptoeing around it and we couldn't, we couldn't kind of make the jump given our other responsibilities in life without, you know, that kind of, I guess, an injection of cash. And so we thought, well, let's make the injection of cash kind of the decision point for us. And, and, you know, we threw ourselves into it. And then as soon as we started to kind of get, I guess, a little bit of traction in the funding round, we were like, okay, this this feels right. This is the right thing to do. But I don't think there was ever a moment where we were like, yeah, you know, absolutely all in. It was more, let's continue to collect the evidence. Let's continue to validate this. And, and let's, you know, let's get to a point where we're comfortable with the, the, the amount of risk we're taking. For you, this was your first company that you were starting. Heidi had obviously been there before, but it's always difficult when you're starting a business to decide who does what and how are you going to split up the equity in the company? Yeah. How did those conversations go? I'm so glad you're asking these questions because it's such important stuff that people don't talk about a lot. I guess the first thing is equity split. So You're right. Heidi had the experience running a business before and, you know, it was kind of her idea a little bit and she'd taken me along for the ride at this point. But she very sensibly was like, well, it's 50-50 because, you know, I want to feel like you're working on this as hard as I'm working on this. And it was such the right decision, you know, like and and kind of has been borne out again and again in our journey that we are completely 50-50. And I hear sometimes early stage founders talking about their equity split and how they're going to work it out, et cetera. And it's just like you you want everybody in the same amount, you know. And I guess it's harder if you've got more co-founders and stuff, but it was really straightforward for Heidi and I that it was 50-50. And then how about like splitting up what each of you did? We made this big list of all the tasks we'd kind of both been doing. So we just used Trello and just had this huge list of, of basically responsibilities, roles and responsibilities. And then we just dragged and dropped them into each other's lists, basically. And that kind of served us well for probably the first year or so. We would just move things across. Everybody says we're pretty data driven. I guess we do. We like to use data to make decisions. And so we tracked our time from day one. So we use like Toggle to track our time. So to see where we're spending time and we have kind of uh, categories that we use to to measure that. And so that helps us make hiring decisions, but it also helps us to keep tabs on who's responsible for what. And then if we need to have a conversation that's like, look, I feel like I'm doing a lot more lead gen than you. Can you take this other thing off my plate? Then we have those conversations. But it's it's been pretty fluid. You're the CEO. So at what point did you guys decide that you need someone that's going to be the CEO. Like usually when you start out, people make up titles and whatever they want to call themselves. Like did you have made up titles at the start? Yeah, yeah. we did. Um, So, I mean, the CEO still feels a bit made up. Uh, When we first started, Heidi was the CEO and I was the COO and it was really just like, Heidi was the boss and I was the other person. Over the course of kind of our first, I guess, 12 to 15 months, that kind of just shifted and it was just naturally shifted because Heidi had a baby. Um, we did an accelerator that I, I went to, so I lived, you know, kind of on site at the accelerator. So it just made sense that we shift it to me to be the CEO um, and so that I have been for the last couple of years. But, you know, it's probably going to shift back again in the future. It just kind of depends what's happening in the business at any point in time. We've got kind of different strengths. Um, Mine's probably more operational and Heidi's maybe more biz dev and kind of, you know, the the dream and stuff. And so it just, it almost depends what stage of the business we're at, who's who's most appropriate. But we're still both co-founders and we're still both, you know, 50-50 in terms of equity. Talk to me about this process of raising capital. You said you wanted capital to sort of like validate that it was worth going all in on. And so you were kind of like shopping around this prototype that you had with your, you know, very small client base. What was some of those conversations like? And how did how did that go down? Yeah, it was it was mixed. Um, I guess kind of before we raised the capital, we had we had pretty much spoken to everyone in the Melbourne, you know, tech kind of funding scene and we'd found them via Google mainly. Um, sometimes there were lists, curated lists, sometimes it was through introductions. So we'd spoken to a lot of people and we probably had a list of say a hundred people that we'd spoken to, uh, and then when it came to okay, we're de- we're going to try and raise this funding round, we we probably narrowed that down to maybe forty that we were like, okay, well these are people we actually gelled with who we thought might be more interested. Let's go round to them. So we ran kind of a structured process. I think we'd heard about it from another startup company that was basically, you know, it was kind of a. <laughs> 
there's all these stories about startups who get term sheets and everyone piles in, and that wasn't our story at all. Ours was we refer to it as a party round, and every round we've run has been a party round. And essentially, we we shop round a very short. Uh, like two-page document about the opportunity. <laughs> we mm-hmm. call it the opportunity, but it's about the business. Uh, we say we're taking expressions of interest by this date. If you express interest, then we'll open up the rest of our docs to you, like our data room and our financials, etc. And then, you know, we're hoping to close by this date. So we kind of try and impose deadlines on that process. Uh, so we we went through this process with uh, kind of the 40 people we'd, we'd spoken to, about 14 of them, or 14 or 15 of them said, uh, yeah, we're interested in, you know, we're expressing interest to go to the next round, not that they're mm-hmm. investing, just they want to see more. Of those kind of 15, 14 ended up investing. So it was, we realised after the fact that it was a really good way to run it because the expression of interest got people, it meant you weren't wasting your time basically by continuing to have conversations with people who weren't going to invest. One of the big issues with scaling any startup is the amount of equity you need to give up to have the resources you need to grow. If you go to a big VC firm, they aren't going to just hand over a cheque for free, they'll want some equity. And the younger your company is, the more equity they'll be looking for. And you're raising from the start. Did you then have to like give up a huge amount of equity to bring in funding or...? We're pretty comfortable now. I mean, we don't, you know, you, you're never completely comfortable with how much you've given up. Or not not that you're not comfortable, but I guess you, you're always trying to avoid giving up anymore. I think it wasn't a huge amount. I guess it's just about traction. So I think raising on an idea is really hard and that's where you're kind of giving up huge chunks of equity. We weren't raising on an idea. We had some traction and not only that, we'd, we could prove that we'd put money into the business. So I think there's a little bit of kind of reaching into your own pocket validates, but it also means that investors can't take the piss um, because you've actually already, you know, that you've already uh, put money in. So uh, I think for us, one, we were really lucky, I guess, we didn't go mad with our valuations um, and so we didn't have that quibble on the valuations that you can sometimes get, which means that, you know, you can have these real swings in, in your equity stake. When you play a volume game, you speak to so many people that you you very quickly kind of are able to, I guess, triangulate where the right spot is in terms of, you know, equity and, and like, I guess, supply and demand. It's like, where where is the market actual valuation of this business? So that's good. But the, the big thing with raising is learning to hear no, because, right. um, you know, you, you're obviously optimistic. That's why you've started a business. Um, you believe in what you're doing and you just think one more conversation, you'll get people over the line, but you waste a lot of time doing that. So I think hearing mm. no and taking the no as a gift, which, you know, hurts, but you need to take the no because it's one step closer to the yes, uh, that's the biggest thing that you, you have to kind of change in your mindset when you're, when you're selling um, for investment as opposed to selling your product. Do you remember the first no? Yeah, much easier to remember the no's than the, the yeses almost because there's so many of them. Um, when you start something new, there's always reasons it's not going to work. Like mm. There's many more reasons it's not going to work than there are that it is going to work. So it's not even no's. You can just remember people who are friends, you know, and who believe in you just saying, ooh, uh, you know, like I just I don't necessarily, it feels a bit niche, you know, stuff right. like that. <laughs> feels a bit niche, Lucy. And so, yeah, it's, um, <laughs> yeah, you, you hear a lot of no's basically. <laughs> <laughs> what, did, uh, what did your parents and your family think? I think they were comfortable with the way we went about it um, and both parties and my partners were comfortable with that too. Like, you know, we did, we were probably on the risk-averse end of the spectrum of, you know, a lot of the founders we've spoken to in terms of the time it took us to actually validate that we had something and the steps we took to make sure we had a wage to earn before we went all in. You know, we, we kind of did it in a pretty old-school, risk-averse kind of way. Um, so I think they were comfortable with that. Uh, we, yeah, it's it's a hard one. I mean, I think potentially there's still still friends who are like, is this going to come off? And, <laughs> you know, we, we're, I guess we're still proving them wrong, but to be honest, you know, we're still so early in the journey that, that who knows? Like it's every every day we, we're, we're still here, you know, we're, we're closer to kind of, you know, permanent survival, but it's, you know, sometimes it still feels like it's, pretty tenuous. <laughs> <laughs> is it, that, that's kind of like the the eternal startup dilemma is like, is this going to work? I don't know. Like it might fail. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a big, it was a big learning for us. I think two things. One is 
it's really exhausting to hold two truths in your mind that are kind of contradictory at the same time. So on the one hand, it's like, this is going to work. This is this is right. This is actually going to make people's lives better. This is, you know, we're an inevitable and huge success. And then on the other hand, it's like, oh, I'm facing five things today that could sink us. And so mm. you've got these two different truths that are, yeah, contradictory that you're holding in your mind at any one time and it can be really exhausting. And so you need to mm. really have that kind of that Teflon coating that the conviction that what you're doing is right and the why of what you're doing is is right to help you get through that kind of, uh, I guess, I don't know, it's just, yeah, it's, it's an inconsistency in the way you're thinking and looking at your life, basically. When raising any kind of capital, it's not just a process of pitching to VC firms hoping that someone will invest. You've also got to make sure that the people putting cash into your company share the same vision for growth as you do. And Lucy says the more no's you hear while raising, the more likely it is that you'll want to take any investment that's offered to you. However, Mental Loop has been lucky that their investors were all people they wanted in the business. It's rare that someone's going to want to put money into your business who's not going to be a good fit with you because they're going to need to believe in you, particularly if you're just so early stage, they're going to be more invested in you than they are in your business. So um, it's rare that you actually have those moments where you're like, do I want to take this money? Um, Unless, I don't know, I mean, it was rare for us anyway. And so we've only had it a couple of times. And in both cases you know, you can always just have another meeting. And so we just take another meeting or we, we bring another party in or we, we have another conversation to just validate, you know, if we're, if we're kind of sitting on the edge of something, then we need, to, we need to do more research, you know. We need to spend more time with that person to see if where we have a, our hunch is right, that there's something not quite right in our relationship or, or whether we just need to satisfy ourselves that they are going to be an ally for the business. Raising money is one thing, but once you have that cash, what do you do with it? From speaking with Lucy, it's very clear that Mental Loop is a company driven by data. Every decision appears to be carefully calculated based on business needs, and they use this philosophy when figuring out the right time to grow the team. By monitoring their time, Lucy and Heidi could see the business had a bottleneck that needed fixing, and that started the process of hiring more staff. We tracked our time religiously for our first kind of six months full time in the business and then we analysed it and we could see that we were spending kind of 40% of our time in lead generation. Uh, At this point we were still outsourcing dev. It was going to be a very big ask for our first hire to be a kind of solo developer and for that person to actually be someone who could build the right product Mm -hmm. for us. So we continued to outsource it to our original partner and instead we we focused on, okay, well, we can see that lead gen is taking, you know, 40% of each of our time. Therefore, it's pretty much one full-time person, potentially with a bit of automation. So that's who we hire first. So it was a really like, and I'd recommend it to any any founders to track their time because it's a really good way to make hiring decisions. Like it does sound like you're a very data-driven company. You care deeply about having this data right through your decision-making process. We do. I think we could still be better though. I think it's, it's a hard one because the more data-driven you are, the less likely you are to stumble in something truly kind of change, you know, that's going to change stuff, you know, because sometimes like everybody's got access to data and the data's potentially all telling us all the same things. So it's actually kind of the hunches that can give you that step change, if that makes sense. So it's kind of let's actually back ourselves with an instinct. That's kind of where you see the biggest kind of inflection points in your business. If you always wait for the data to tell you, then you're going to be kind of making the same decisions as everybody else. People always um, screw things up early Mm, on in in, in the business life. (laughs) Like, (laughs) um, Can you give me an example of like what's something that... um, you guys, you know, maybe you were like hard set on like, this is this is the way it should be. And then it turned out it was completely wrong and you stuffed it up or you made the wrong call. I think two things spring to mind when you ask that. One is um, the, the chasing down every single opportunity, regardless of whether it actually led us to where we wanted to go. That was a big thing. Probably the first six months we spent a bit of time wheel spinning before we actually got traction because, you know, people would call us up and be like, oh, my nephew John is, you know, studying this and he wants to build you an app. And we'd be like, yeah, get John in, let's build an app. And they'd be like, oh, no, Sandra wants to, you know, someone to partner with her to build this community mentoring thing. We're like, yeah, we'll, we'll build that community mentoring thing. And we never actually stopped to think, is this actually getting our business to the goals that we have set for ourselves? And so I think that kind of one, the just setting goals for your business, you know, on a six-month kind of uh, frequency was a great lesson for us, but also 
also then starting to evaluate what you were doing based on that. And it sounds pretty simple stuff, but it was something that we spent a lot of time just, you know, you're naturally optimistic, you want to chase down every opportunity, but you kind of very quickly need to kind of put some discipline around how you're evaluating those opportunities. And then the second thing is is people. And so Heidi and I, um, you know, we, we started a mentoring company. We were like, we're people, people, we know people, we can hire great people. And so <laughs> we didn't have any rigour around that either. And so we just kind of would hire people when they turned up and said, oh, I'd love to come work for you. I've read an article about you. We'd be like, great. You know, like this person actually wants to work with us knowing almost nothing about us. Uh, and we didn't check to see if their skills actually matched any of the things we needed to get done. And so we had a couple of hires early on that were like that. And then we, we get to a point where we're like, oh, actually this, you know, the way our team's working isn't getting us to the outcome we want to um, get to as well. And so we had to harden up quite quickly. And those people lessons are the hardest lessons to learn. Was that sort of like a difficult process for you then to have to realise that, I know, we've we've brought the wrong person in, we're going to have to let them go? Yeah, that that's basically what it was. And it was, you know, it was heartbreaking because everybody liked each other. And the other thing is because you're so small, everybody's friends with each other as well. And so, yeah, you have to you have to kind of, I guess, put the business first or put the, the goals that you've set first. But, yeah, it's, it's hard. But it makes you learn it really, you learn that lesson quickly because you don't want to have to feel that way again. And so then you make sure with the next time. And, look, it's not always going to work out, but we've got a lot more process around how we actually evaluate what we need to do next from a hiring perspective and also then how we actually bring people on board. And we'll have more of our interview with Lucy Lloyd right after this break. This is Building a Unicorn. I'm Christopher Lawson. In early 2017, Mental Loop went through Startmate, the most successful startup accelerator in Australia. It was an opportunity for the company to grow and expand, as well as meet more investors. The other thing an accelerator can give you is mentorship, and for a young company like Mental Loop, finding good mentors is really important. But despite being a company focused on mentorship, Lucy says it took a bit of time for them to realise that as founders, they, like every other startup founder, still needed support. I think we still had to learn a lesson about asking for help. And I think there's a bit of, um, I think because we were both, one was we're both both chicks, um, we're both non-technical founders. So we felt like a little bit outsiders in the in the local tech scene. And I think when you feel like an outsider, you can get a little bit of imposter syndrome. And when you've got a little bit of imposter syndrome, you can have this kind of urge to do it all yourself and to prove that you're, you know, able to be in this industry or this this kind of community. And so I think we had to learn to ask for help. Even though we were running a mentoring company and knew the importance of asking for help, we still had to kind of learn that lesson to actually properly ask for help from people in the community, which we've very much learnt now. What makes a good mentor? It starts with the mentee. So I guess I'd, I'd more put it like how does the mentee set themselves up to find a good mentor? And it's it's with it's starting with their why, or I guess why are they looking for a mentor? What do they want to achieve? And and making that kind of short term and achievable and and something that's definable. Um, so something in like six months, I want to have gotten to let's say this revenue goal. If you happen to have a revenue goal for your business, so now go and find a mentor that can help you achieve that. I think when you cast your eyes about and see just someone awesome in the community who you'd love to spend some time with. That can be a great mentoring relationship, but chances are a lot of people are approaching that person to be their mentor. And if you're not framing it around a very specific problem, it's going to be hard for that person to to help you. And so the more specific the mentee gets with the ask, the better the chances of success. And don't stop at one. I mean, we believe in building your own kind of personal advisory board and that's what Heidi and I have. We've got each of our, we've got shared mentors, but we've also got our own mentors separately as well. And, you know, I've got one that I call on when I've got, you know, an issue that I need to solve with the team or with something of how I'm building our team structures. And I've got another one that I call on when I really just need to talk about product. And I've got another one that I call on when I just want to talk about kind of hard metrics and financials. And so if you build that personal advisory board, then one, you know, those mentors aren't going to get fatigued by being called on by you all the time, but also 
you're, you know, it's greater than the sum of its parts. It's, um, you know, it's a kind of a, a whole team of, of people that you can call on when you need them to help you be the best version of yourself. Say you were someone that that feels like you need advice, like from someone, from a mentor. You want to find a mentor. What should you do? You should, uh, yeah, you should start start by yourself. And so start just, I guess, working out what you want to achieve. So so why a mentor, basically? And I think a lot of us just fall into the uh, trap of mentoring's good. You know, who wouldn't want a mentor? It's wonderful. Like they can be a cheerleader. They can be uh, hold a mirror up to you. You know, they can provide insight. But really you need to, to drill down into that why. So why a mentor? Why now? Is it about a transition? And often it's about a transition if you want to change careers, for example. Uh, is it about that you're not growing quickly enough? Is it about you've just started managing a team. So you need to kind of, I guess, drill down into the why so that then you can identify the right mentor, but also importantly, so you can frame your ask in a way that it's really easy for them to say yes. And so you don't want to rush into the, will you be my mentor conversation? That's terribly awkward. Um, Instead, you want to start with, you know, the conversation. So, hi, you know, uh, Chris, I see that you've, uh, you know, done really well in building up an audience uh, for your podcast. I would love to, I'm, I'm at this stage of my journey. I'd just love to ask you these three questions. Can I take you for coffee next week? Give them an agenda up front so they know what you're going to talk about. We always see like, mentors when we meet with them for the first time and and just say, I just want to talk to you about three things today. They visibly relax because they're like, oh, thank God it's only three. And also also someone's giving me talking points. You know, I don't have to just impart wisdom willy-nilly. I can actually answer questions. So it really is, it's all on the mentee to make it as easy as possible for the mentor to engage. And then hopefully it blossoms into a long-term and beautiful relationship. But even if it doesn't, you've gotten the optimum value from that one interaction. After graduating from Startmate in April of 2017, Mentor Loop had landed some great partnerships, including one with the Australian Olympic Committee. The business was going well and they felt the need to scale, so they started raising more cash and in November of 2017 closed a seed round of 725000 Australian dollars, bringing their total funding to just over a million dollars. And Lucy says the need to raise more cash was once again sparked by data. Things moved quickly for us and so we we kind of hit this seam of demand that we weren't necessarily expecting and so we needed to service that demand and so we needed to kind of grow our team quite rapidly. So that was one thing. The second thing was, let's say, you know, we couldn't raise and had to throttle demand and, you know, only grow at a a certain lower rate. We were worried we were going to miss an opportunity because we started to see uh, competitors start to kind of crop up in the States and and overseas that, you know, at the time we were were worried about. Um, And so we thought, okay, well, this is an opportunity that we're going to miss if we don't act now. And then thirdly, in kind of just a cursory uh, few chats with the market. We had a bit of a profile now from Startmate. Um, we we kind of knew that there was money there, that we would be able to raise a bit of money. And it wasn't a huge amount of money. Again, like by this, like even after that round, we'd only raised a total of a million. But, you know, we we didn't need any more than that to kind of achieve the next milestones that we wanted to achieve. And so it, it made sense for us. How did you think about managing like how quickly you were growing? And deciding like, okay, well, we need to hire another like three people or whatever. Like, how did you make those decisions? Was that just all data driven as well? Yeah, a mixture. I think it was. Uh, it was a combination of data driven and the right people kind of coming past us, basically, as, as kind of seeing these right people that we could imagine being in the in the business. So we still continue to use the kind of time tracking method of just seeing where we're spending time and where the gaps are. Uh, we also were just introduced to a couple of awesome people. Um, one of our uh, dev team of, from the partner that we were working with, um, the dev partner, so outsourcing our development, we could see that he was looking around and so we kind of pounced um, to hire our CTO. Uh, and so that was the beginning of our internal dev team, which has been, you know, that, that's a, a game changer for a company like us when you bring that in-house. So that was a big inflection point. Um, we just happened to, to meet this awesome kind of biz dev kind of salesperson who was keen to join a startup. Uh, again, like customer success, um, uh, we, yeah, we, we met some cool people. It was, it was a little bit organic and a little bit data-driven, basically. At that time, like you learnt the lessons about like hiring the wrong people 
How do you then convince these people who are very talented, have their own career, etc., to then come and work in your little tiny startup? Yeah, and this is where like people do PR for many reasons. Um, one is you know because it helps attract customers. One is it helps like attract investment. One is it like that your parents really like it. Um, our parents really like it when we're in the paper. But for us, um, it was about attracting quality talent. Like that's now that I look back on the PR that we did because at the time. We we're just like, let's do some PR. That seems like a good idea. Uh, now I look back on it and it's it's been kind of instrumental. When when candidates Google us, they find a lot of stuff about Mentor Loop that's in, you know, established quality publications. They're like, are these girls legit? And, you know, I think it's been really a game changer for how we can attract and hire talented staff. Now we've got a bit of a team. We're kind of 10 people. So now we can attract and hire talented staff because we've got talented, awesome staff, you know, solving a problem together. But back then, the PR was a really big help for us. So you, you've raised you've raised more than a million now. Um, are you done raising? <laughs> this is a hard one because you kind of get on this hamster wheel of raising and your, you know, early investors expect you to continue to raise um, as mm. well to continue to fuel your growth. I think we will raise again, but our next raise will be different in the sense that it will purely be for growth, not for proving the concept. So, um, and by that I mean, I mean, we've always kind of raised for growth, but we've raised to kind of catch up to that growth, whereas the next raise will be about being, getting in front of the growth, if that makes sense, that, that kind of distinction. I think we're so much more certain now about what we're doing and the fact that we can sell this repeatably and that we rec- can recognise patterns and that we can use those patterns to build a better product. Um, so it's, it's a totally different conversation now. Mental Loop now has a team of 12 people. They actually hired someone on the day of our interview. It's a growing company that's still figuring out some of the challenges with international expansion. But they do have a number of clients overseas, and so they've dedicated someone in their team to focus on the UK market. It was really interesting. They just kind of kept over-indexing on our inbound inquiries. So we um, we kind of, the way we, we attract uh, customers is um, we basically run an inbound machine is what we call it. And so it's essentially like a content and search strategy that allows people to find us when they're at the perfect point at which they want to purchase a mentoring software platform, essentially. And so we then, you know, take those leads, we, we demo them and we move them through our funnel. We'd historically concentrated all our efforts um, on Australia and the US, thinking that the US was the natural big market for us. And we just kept getting this kind of consistent, like 15 to 20% of our leads each month were coming from the UK with us spending no time on the UK or no money on the UK. So we just were like, what's happening here? And then we started to close deals over there and much bigger and kind of more impressive deals than we were closing even in Australia. And so they were over-indexing in our client base. They were over-indexing in our, our early prospects. Uh, and then as we started to get to know our clients over there, they were expanding more quickly as well. And so it's just, there's just some market conditions that mean that mentoring is is really kind of popular, really hot right now in the UK. Um, I think there's a lot of competition for talent over there that, that we just don't kind of have any conception of here. And so companies are putting their people first in a really compelling way and mentoring is a core part of how they're doing that. And so mm. in the UK, we work with... Um, the BBC, Just Eat, Sky, um, so some big media companies. And so they're, you know, they're pretty awesome brands that, um, yeah, we've even managed to kind of sell from just being like a 10-person shop based in Melbourne, Australia. So those signals point to it being a really fertile market for us. Have you noticed any interesting trends? Like now that you're a couple of years in, um, you've got all these clients that are, you know, facilitating these mentor relationships. Are you noticing any trends in like the types of people that are trying to be mentors or gaps in the market? One of the kind of consistent trends is that mentoring is kind of more popular than people realise. Um, and so our clients come to us and they say something like, oh, we're going to put it out to this group. We reckon 80 people will be interested. And then they put the call to action out and they get 300 people signing up. So there's this kind of this grassroots demand for mentoring at the individual level that companies don't have any conception of. And so that's something that we can obviously play to and is is in our favour. Otherwise, I think it's there's there's this trend now of, of companies moving moving their HR function beyond just process to actual making life 
better for their people. And the companies that do this are the ones who are kind of winning the war for talent and the ones who are going to kind of win in the next couple of decades in terms of they're going to be the ones that kind of quash their their competitors. And they're the ones that kind of have mentoring, they're either building mentoring into their culture or it already exists as part of their culture. Uh, so that's, um, I guess, one of the kind of side effects of working in mentoring that we didn't realise, you know, when we started was we're always working with really awesome people because they're the types who believe in the power of people to change each other's lives. And so they're always just nice to work with, essentially. You know, we don't work with any dickheads. In the past few years, there's been a big push for men to mentor more women into senior leadership positions. It's part of a movement called Mentor Her, championed by Sheryl Sandberg, the Chief Operating Officer at Facebook. And if you look at the data, it's vital that organisations think about the opportunities that they create and the culture that they're building internally, because problems with diversity start from the top. In 2018, there were just 24 women leading Fortune 500 companies, a number which was down 25% on 2017. There's a clear need to surface more women to the top of large organisations, And one of the ways companies can do this is by providing mentorship opportunities that actually encourage growth and development into those senior leadership roles. A lot of our clients come to us because they want to solve a diversity inclusion issue. It's not always about women, but often it is. And I guess we have an expression we use internally, which is you don't want to create special programs for special people. And so by that we mean we don't want to stream people off. Um, You know, instead you want to cross-pollinate. And so as well as having, you know, senior men mentor junior women, you actually want senior women mentoring junior men as well because that's how you actually create kind of, you know, generational change by, by having the women in the position of power so you're not kind of reinforcing the same stereotypes again and again. Uh, We also, I guess, with kind of the way Mentor Loop is built, it's about making the unobvious connections more obvious as well because historically in mentoring, you know, it it happens from a beautiful place and it's someone senior recognises something of themselves in someone junior, takes them under their wing, but it means that like is always mentoring like and you're getting these same kind of advocacy pathways being trodden where essentially white dudes are, you know, getting the, the fast track. So mentoring is a great way to break this down. I think the the Mentor Her movement is a beautiful movement. It's for both men and women to kind of commit to mentoring more younger women um, coming up the, the rungs. But when I look at this problem of diversity in tech uh, that people are talking about, I think the problems with the definition of tech, I think that women are in, in droves. They are owning this social influencer market but it's just because it's not they're not engineers you know they're kind of excluded from the definition and so there's a phrase we hear a lot um, or we used to hear a lot when we were kind of swimming in you know accelerator circles which was oh they're non-tech founders and it's just kind of like yeah but we're marketing founders or we're sales founders you know like we're it's not that we're non-tech founders we're like founders who can sell and so I think that it's just about we're all in the tech industry. It's just that some of us are in reputation management or some of us are in branding, you know, and that, that they're the jobs that the women are doing and they're doing them really well. I want to stop for just a minute because Lucy's point on non-technical founders is really important. When you're building any company, it's vital to have the right experience at the top. The truth is not every developer is that great at selling products, leading staff or managing finances. And without those elements, it's unlikely you'll have a successful business. There are many examples of successful startups who have thrived despite not having a so-called technical founder. And Lucy says having non-coders leading a company can be critical, especially once you start to scale. Actually, when development's more expensive to you, you take better care that you're developing the right stuff. Um, and that's that's kind of been our experience. Uh, but I think um, the, the tech stuff, even when you're a technical founder, you're only coding for a year. If you're on, if you're, you know, building a big company, you're managing people before that first year's gone. So it's, you know, it's only, it's, it's at a premium for a very short amount of time. In a bigger business, do you think that people are somewhat undervalued and the development opportunities are undervalued? Yeah, I think that, like, I I just hate the expression human resources. Like, it just points to this kind of 
accounting, this like people by numbers kind of like it's just a terrible expression, human resources. Like I hate it. Um, and, um, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's, it's just so mechanical. And so I think, yeah, businesses, when they get to that big, that when they get the larger they get, the more they do treat people as resources and refer to them as resources. And that's just, it's just, you know, it's just the wrong way to think about it. And so even just that, that very terminology has these knock-on effects of how how a workforce is viewed and how their development opportunities are crafted, and it means that most of the time people are left on the sidelines. You know, uh, a certain you know cream of the crop are selected for fast track, and these same advocacy pathways are repeated again and again, and you know people are disengaged. So you know the companies that are going to win are the ones that build the people first culture, and the people first culture means giving everyone opportunities. And if you think about big companies who want to, let's say they just want to beat their competitors. At, at some metric, um, if they're focusing on their kind of 5%, you know, the 5% of their winners, their high potentials, they're focusing on this group that are already optimising for their own development. If they turn their attention to the other 95% of the people who work with them and just lift them up a little bit, then they're moving the needle by a lot more, basically. Do you spend much time thinking about what your company is going to look like when you are 100 people or 200 people? Kind of. It sometimes can seem pretty academic considering what we've got to solve today, you know, and this week. I think that's a bit of a challenge for us as a business moving beyond today and this week uh, because we have been so executional and so in the weeds for so long. We do, you know, we can kind of see the big picture, like the long-term big picture, but the mid-term stuff eludes us a little bit. So we need to get better at those 12-month plans. At the moment, we're still pretty much like quarterly plans. We're just like, what do we need to do now to stay alive? And um, yeah, we need to get better at that kind of mid-range strategizing, basically. The reason that I ask that is because a lot of the founders that, that we talk with are, you know, quite advanced. And so they, they're at this stage where they can like look back and go, oh yeah, like the first 10 or 20 people, like that set up, up the entire culture of the company. I wonder like how you think about culture in your company now and the way that that might influence the way your company grows? I think the best way to sum it up is like it's strong opinions held lightly. So we do these cultural sessions with our existing team. We think about these uh, cultural values that we're like, yep, we really believe in this. But then, you know, the slightest kind of just shift in how we're focusing, we're, we're happy to take another look at them. So it's kind of, yeah, strong opinions held lightly is how we're like looking at our culture. So it's not something that's set in stone um, at this point because we are only 12 people and we're still, it's still revealing itself to us. We know that it's there, but it's just revealing itself to us over time. And so we, you know, we we want to give people a framework to operate in, in terms of what we believe, like the, the things that we hold true. But we also want to be as open as possible, like as flexible as possible for that to grow as we grow. What are the values that you tell to your staff? One of them is we take a position and we, we back ourselves. So that kind of alludes to the, the data-driven stuff I was talking about earlier. We don't necessarily always wait for data to, to take a position. Um, and so even if we don't have the data, we make sure we're all behind it. So we back ourselves. One of them is uh, done then fun. So basically we, you know, we work hard and then we, we, but we do like to have fun together. And this is a funny one. It's um, balls to the wall. So <laughs> it sounds like we're referring to testicles, but we're not. So bear with me. Um, so balls to the wall is an aviation expression. And so it refers to mm. the ball at the top of a joystick. And so, you know, when you're going kind of full throttle, that's balls to the wall. Um, and so we do use this expression balls to the wall. It's just like, you know, when we're kind of, when we're, we're feeling strongly about something, we're like, well, let's really test it out. Let's go balls to the wall on that. And we do that kind of in our work and our play a bit, you know, it's, it's always balls to the wall. So yeah, that's, that's one of our values. So I'm really sorry you asked that question because it's a very internal value that we have to <laughs> induct people into because it sounds so terrible, but actually it's just about giving it our all. That's great. That's great. <laughs> um, okay. So you, you're, you're giving it your all. When you look at what you've created already, how do you feel? Yeah, good. Um, I um, am amazing. I think one thing that's been really wonderful for us this year is going into the UK market. So Heidi and I did a kind of big roadshow for three weeks just in Feb, so just a few weeks ago. Um, and we 
felt like founders again. I think we'd we'd gotten pretty a bit comfortable, you know, with with where our business was going and and how we were growing. Uh, and so in you know the UK, we were kind of wedging our feet into doorways. You know, we were hustling, we were getting that meeting, we were kind of making you know pests of ourselves a little bit, and it felt really wonderful. But it also made us realise how far we'd come here with our business. Uh, you know, we are still really really early stage, uh, but we haven't stopped having fun. And now we've got more people to have fun with because the team's, you know, almost like it will be 12 shortly. That's how we feel. I think it's overwhelmingly just this sense of fun, you know, like nothing's more fun than what we're doing day to day. Thanks to Lucy for taking the time to speak with me for this story. Building a Unicorn is a Lawson Media production. You can find out more about the show, get episode transcripts, or join our newsletter at our website, buildingauniconn.com. This episode was hosted and scripted by me, Christopher Lawson, and our theme music is by Nick Buchanan. Other music from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Mixing and editing by James Parkinson, and our artwork is by Andrew Millist. And if you've got any guest suggestions or just have some feedback, send us an email to unicorn at lawson.media. We read all your messages, so please keep sending them in. We'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs>